Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. We're going to be wrapping up our series today, um, Countercultural. And I'm really excited about what, uh, what God has laid on my heart this morning for us. And uh, before we, we get to Scripture, um, many of you, if not all of you, I would, I would hope at this point would know that I am an avid reader. I love books. Uh, I read um, constantly. In fact, um, I think I just finished uh, my 92nd or my 93rd book this year, or sorry, last year, like just finished up the 93rd or 94th book that I was working on. I just just got it finished. And I'm starting on my list for 2024. And uh, there was a book that I read probably five or six years ago in ministry. And it was a book that I just uh, finished up again. And, and that book uh, was talking about what it means to, to be a Christian on a college campus or, or what it means to be a Christian on a high school campus or even in, uh, in a workplace. And it asked probably one of the most honest, insightful, and profound questions that I've ever come across in a, in a theological book before. And it was a, a question... Um, that I cannot shake and have not been able to shake since the first time that I ever came across it. And this was the question. What do you do when you feel like you want your neighbor to go to hell? That was the question that the writer asked. What do you do when you feel like you want your neighbor to go to hell? The writer goes on to explain that so many Christians feel a considerable amount of anger towards the culture around them. That, that they feel angry at how they seem to be portrayed in the media and on social media. I mean, how the other side seems to twist reality and they often get away with twisting that reality towards Christians. In fact, the more society twists the reality, uh, the more critics seem to love the twisted versions of Christianity. How many of you... Uh, have ever watched news before on TV? Maybe after a, a war or after you know, some horrific event, you've seen it on the news or you've heard about it on TV, right? I have found more often than not that the news finds somebody to interview to get a Christian perspective after events happen. And it seems like they always pick the craziest Christian to interview. And they get on there and they're like, why did this horrific event happen? And that man or that woman's like, well, God sent that tornado to kill all the gays and the Democrats. And you see things and you hear things like this. And as a Christian, you think to yourself, where on earth did they find that Christian to interview for this news station? Where? And then there are a lot of Christians that feel so much anger at always being presented in that type of way. You're so tired uh, of, of the far-leaning professors that are attempting to rewrite our country's history. You're so angry at the activist judges that are trying to redefine morality in our culture. You're angry at the progressive theologians that are attempting to rewrite the Bible again in 2023. Or maybe 
you've heard of a man named Christopher Hitchens who is a socialist and someone that he calls an anti-theist, meaning I don't even believe that there is a God, not an atheist. I just don't even believe anything about God. And if it is about God, I'm completely against it. He said that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid than anybody else. I read this quote by him and I could not help but think he's talking about me. He's talking about me. And I asked my wife this week, is, is our body of believers, is the group that gathers here, whether you're in person or you're online because of sickness or you physically can't get, are we more mean and more selfish and more stupid than anyone else in this community? See, I mean, it was an honest question, and I was looking for my wife to give me an answer, and she really couldn't give me an answer. And so I went back to this book, and the, the, this book is called Examining um, or Redefining Evangelism by Randy Newman. And in that book, he said that Christians appear angry in the media because Christians are angry. We'd never say it out loud, he goes on to say, but so many times in our fleshly attitude, we say, well, one day they're going to get theirs. Whether we say it out loud or not, we've thought it. Is anyone else in here tracking with any of this this morning? You've ever felt this way? You felt angry because of how we're portrayed by the media or on social media? Or you've been angry because, because the, the, the people have twisted what Christianity is and everyone's just believing that that's how all Christians are. And anybody else get angry? Is it just me in here? Or we get frustrated at these things. We, we become defensive. We become overly guarded. And then we get to a chapter like Titus chapter 3. And Paul begins to highlight how the gospel is supposed to transform our attitude towards those who are outside of our circle. To the people who harbor animosity towards the Christian. The people who misrepresent Christianity. Or even the people that subject you and I to persecution. And Paul says this in verse number one. He says, remind them. He's talking to Titus and he says, remind them. Remind the Christian to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind the Christian to be obedient. Remind the Christian to be ready for every good work. Remind the Christian to speak evil of no one. Remind the Christian to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards who? All people. And the central piece, aspect of the start of chapter 3 is the key word all. It is a call in these first two verses for the Christian to extend the truth of God's word, not just to fellow Christians, but to everybody including, and perhaps Christian, look up here real quick, extend the gospel, including, and perhaps, especially to those that we perceive as enemies. And all God's people said, amen. We are to be a people, Paul said, that are gentle and courteous. We are to be a people that return good for the evil that is done to us. 
We are the people that are both uh, supposed to be submissive towards government and authority, but also subversive at the same time. It means that we can disagree with somebody without dishonoring them. That's the command that Paul gave to the Christian. But then in, in classic Paul fashion, classic Paul fashion, this is what he says next. In verse number three, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Man, Paul gives one of the clearest and most concise explanations of the gospel found anywhere in all of the letters that he wrote. He wrote almost three quarters of the New Testament and he, in that single verse, gave you and I a picture of what we are without Christ. And it's intriguing here to, to see the key to interpreting all of Paul's teachings, he says, is that commands always flow out of gospel declarations. It's not that we do these things and they make us better people that God approves of. It's that we have become aware of what God has done in us through Christ, that we become what he said in the first two verses. Submissive, obedient, Loving one another. Why? Why does that happen? Christ inside of us. How many of you know who Martin Luther is? One of the giants of the Reformation. He said that imperatives in the Bible always flow out of indicatives. Now you're like, what on earth are you talking about? So strap your seatbelts on for me for just a moment because we're going to have a quick English lesson. I'm not an English teacher, and I know you're not in school, but we're going to give you a quick English lesson because it's important. How many of you love English and know the difference between an imperative and indicative? Okay, not many. That's okay. Imperatives are commands in Scripture. They are commands. Indicatives are statements of fact. Indicatives are statements of fact. Imperatives are commands. So imperatives, the commands of what God wants us to do, those flow out of indicatives. They, they flow out of declarations of what God has already done for us. So Christian, maybe you're in here and you're a non-Christian, before the gospel tells you to behave, before the gospel tells you to become, it tells you to behold. It tells you to behold. Because beholding is the way to becoming. And when you become, you behave. I'm going to say it again. The gospel does not tell you to become or behave. It tells you to behold. And when you behold, you become. And when you become, you behave. Beholding Jesus Christ and what he has done for you makes your heart to become righteous. It makes it that way. And when you become righteous, you do righteous things naturally. And so we're going to dive into the rest of this text on the premise of indicative statements of truth and imperative commands of God. And I want us to first look 
at the indicative of what Paul is declaring to us about the gospel. And then I want to see the imperatives of what he wants us to do in response to that. And so in verse number three, I want us to reread it because he gives us a description of us and it is really dismal. It really is. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now I want to break apart a couple of these words to help us understand what Paul is truly talking about. Because Paul said that we were all once foolish. That word foolish in the Greek means ignorant and warped. That's what it means. Our hearts, Paul said, were, and, and I say this with all reverence, he's saying that our hearts are spiritually stupid. That's what Paul is saying. We were moral morons. The apostle John put it this way, that we loved darkness rather than we loved light. Paul told us in Romans chapter 1 that we became twisted in our minds and disordered in our emotions. Martin Luther, that guy I was just talking about a few moments ago, he paraphrased Romans by saying that we were curved inward on ourselves. We were foolish. But more than foolish, he said that we were disobedient. It's not just that our morality was distorted. We disobeyed even the things that we knew to be right. Disobedient. He said that we were led astray. Meaning that our heart was at a point where vulnerability to deception was prevalent. It wasn't um, a case of, of genuine deception. Rather, there was a willingness on our part to be deceived. We were willing to be deceived. Do you know that um, I, I've counseled so many, so many people, and I often see this in counseling. Uh, people attribute their problems to external influences. So we sit down, and I ask them, you know, what would you like to, to talk about, or why did you want to meet with me? And they will often start out by saying, I have this issue. And when I start to ask questions about that issue, oftentimes they, they come back to some sort of external source that is leading them or influencing them to a certain way. And a lot of times people, especially teenagers, they will say, well, I just associated with the wrong people. Or some version of that will come out. However, the reality is that you chose the people that you associated with because for whatever reason, you preferred those people over the right crowd. You chose them. It's not merely about being in the wrong crowd. It's about becoming the wrong crowd ourselves. And that's why association feels comfortable, comfortable to us. You and I were born with a disposition towards the wrong things and that makes us deceivable. That's what makes us deceivable. We see it in our kids, don't we? How many of you in here are a parent? Even if your kids are adults. You're, you see it in your kids. Nobody's kids got up on Saturday morning before you and they cleaned the entire house and they dusted everything and they cooked you breakfast and then they were sitting at the dining room table in their Bible journaling, I just need to surrender more of my life to Jesus. 
we say, um, who set the backyard on fire when we wake up? And don't point to your little sister who's only two months old because she can't even walk and talk. We didn't teach our kids to do the wrong things. Uh, Bree and I talk about this often. It's probably one of the most talked about spiritual conversations in our home is how are we leading our kids in this next season or this next phase of their life. And just recently, one of our children who will remain nameless at this moment in time did something that they knew was against the rules of our home. It was clearly laid out and they broke that rule. They did something that was ultra disrespectful in my wife and I's eyes. And we were talking about this behind closed doors, uh, my wife and I were. And we needed to bring some, some light, lightness to the situation. And at the end of having the conversation and, and, and punishing our child, um, Bree came back in the room with me and she said, you know, we never sent our kids to disrespect camp. Why are they disrespectful? Now we know the answer to that question. And I responded because our hearts are led astray. Because our hearts are led astray. We, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. But more than just that, we were slaves of our own passions and our own pleasures. Our separation from God, Christian, that leaves a gap in our hearts that makes us dependent upon other things. I want you to think with me for a moment. It's like drowning in water. You don't die from holding your breath. You die because you breathe in water. That's how you die. When you're not breathing in air, you have to breathe in something else. And it's the same way with spiritually breathing. When you're not breathing in the glory of God, you will find something else to breathe in, church. You'll find something else to breathe in. In Christian, the biggest lie in our culture is that rejecting God's law leads to freedom. That's the biggest lie that our culture gives to us. In fact, the, it is the exact opposite of that. When we reject God, we become addicted to. We become slaves to other passions. I don't pretend to have all the answers on Christian living, but I do know that it is often the absence of purpose and identity found in Christ that creates a craving that enslaves you and I to our bodily desires. You know, when, whenever you and I put something or someone else in the place of God, you end up hating it when it inevitably disappoints you. Another giant of the Christian faith, in fact, probably one of the catalysts that started, that God used, and one of the great awakenings here in our country was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was the, the preacher that penned all of his notes and stood in a pulpit and read them verbatim, word for word, off of a sheet of paper. He wrote a sermon, probably one of his most recognizable sermons, that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard of it. 
Jonathan Edwards said near the end of his life that what Christians and non-Christians idolize, inevitably we demonize. I know that might sound ironic to those of you sitting in this room, but that's the way that it works. We put so much weight onto things that it collapses, and when it collapses, you begin to hate that thing. And that happens in our soul as well. When we put too much weight on people or, or, or relationships or drugs or sex, when we put weight onto things and they collapse, we begin to hate them. That's why some marriages start out so well and then they go bitter. That's why some of you grapple with jealousy towards people who have more wealth, desiring what they have or blaming them when they hinder you from it. That's why some of you struggle in an area that I have so struggled in, and that's seeking the approval of other people. When seeking the approval of someone else, when that begins to consume you, then then those receiving more praise become the targets of our resentment for supposedly stealing our recognition. Maybe you're in here and family holds an idolized status for you disillusionment will lead to bitterness and self-pity when they fall short. Perhaps you harbor resentment towards your spouse and you view your spouse as a cause of disruption in your family dynamic. Last year, I had to probably walk through one of the most difficult things in my life and that was the process of forgiving other people. People that were close to me or people that I trusted And you want to know what I learned through that process? That inability to forgive is a form of hatred. I'm going to say it again. Inability to forgive is a form of hatred. I hate so-and-so because they destroyed this. I hate my spouse because they cheated on me. I, I hate my kid because of the lifestyle that they've chosen to walk in. Paul said that you hated others and you were hated by others. Maybe you're in here this morning and your children resent you because you have always tried to control them. What you idolize, you demonize. So when you put something in the place of God, it puts you into a place where your soul will begin to shrivel and you become guarded and hateful towards anyone who threatens it. Hated by others and hating one another. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures, living out our days in malice and envy. That's who we are without Christ. You know, God has given a thousand plus reasons to condemn you and I. And we often like to think of ourselves as mostly good with a few spots that need to be sanded down. Or a couple of bad spots that need to be cut out. But the Bible was so clear that sin corrupted us and because of that corruption, we were dead. We were dead 
How many of you um, know uh, the book, Oscar, Oscar Wilde's book, The Picture of Dorian Gray? Anybody? A couple of you. Okay. So what I'm talking about right now, I, I'm, I'm going to read to you so spoiler alert this morning, okay? If you're ever going to go read the book, I'm really sorry. But that book, to me, probably gave my favorite depiction of what I'm talking about right now. So in Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, there's this young, super handsome young man, and his name is Dorian Gray. And he decides to have a portrait painted of him. And as he gazes at this portrait when it's finished, he thinks to himself, if only we could reverse roles. If only my portrait would do all the aging while I remain youthful and unchanged forever. And as you read through the book, you soon find out that Dorian gets his wish. He remains this young, handsome socialite where where this portrait is hidden away in his attic. And that portrait begins to age. And that portrait also begins to bear the consequences of all of Dorian's real behavior. Dorian makes a cruel comment to somebody and the mouth on the portrait will twist into a cruel grin. He nurses hatred for some rival in the book and the eyes of the portrait begin to narrow in rage. And eventually we get to this point where Dorian ends up murdering, so spoiler alert, he ends up murdering a guy. And when he does, the hands of the portrait begin to drip blood. And when Dorian finally recognizes that that terrible portrait was a representation of what was truly going on inside of him, he despises the painting so much that he takes a knife to it, repeatedly slashing it over and over and over again. Later on in the book, a servant comes along and finds that in the attic, the portrait has completely vanished. It's gone. And then he finds Dorian Gray lying dead on the floor with a knife through his chest. And that's what Paul said happens to us. Imagine for just a moment that scripture ended right there. Imagine that's all that scripture ever recorded for us is that you and I were dead in our sins, foolish, disobedient, led astray. What if that was it? Imagine coming to church and you leave and a family member calls you or a friend calls you and they were like, how was your day at service this morning? And you're like, well, we heard a talk on eternal damnation and why we all deserve it. How was yours? Can we just admit something this morning? Can we admit that there is a problem? Can we admit that that problem is right here? Right here. Right in the heart of man and woman and teenager and child. Can we, can we do that? Can we, even, can we even fathom the fact that we are sinful and the problem is, is right here. Missionary and theologian E. Stanley Jones 
said this on the screen, all at once in a moment of weakness, something will break through to the surface. And we like to say, oh, that is not really me, but it is. That is the real unfiltered you. It's sad to me as a Christian and as a pastor that we learn to mask our heart. That we learn to mask where we're really at. We walk into church buildings Sunday after Sunday with facades placed upon us, covering what's truly going on in our lives. But church, we're, we're sick right inside here. And I'm, I'm just as guilty as the next person. We're sick inside of here. We, we are dead in our sins. Paul called that spiritual death. Imagine this was the end of the sermon. And I just sent you on your way. You're like, worst sermon ever. But then we get to verse number four. We get to verse number four in the text, and Paul says, after saying all of these things about us, he says, but, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, when it appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. I don't mean for this to come out in any joking way, but the beauty of the gospel is in the word but, right here in verse number four. The beauty of the gospel lies in that single three-letter word, but. We have to notice this morning that before Paul got to the beauty of the gospel, he had to bring us face-to-face with our depravity. He had to bring us face-to-face with the fact that we needed a Savior, That we needed someone to radically change who we are. He said you and I were foolish. We were ignorant and warped. I think sometimes we want to skip over the fact that we need a savior. We we want to jump right to the, the beauty of God. But I've learned in this Christian life that you will never appreciate the beauty of the gospel until you understand why you need Jesus Christ. You will never understand the beauty. It will never make you and I weep for joy, nor will it change us until we understand why we need a Savior. Charles Spurgeon said that too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who stood before his God, convicted and condemned with a rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Francis Schaeffer, one of our country's greatest defenders of the faith, was asked before his death, what would you do if you met a man on a train and had one hour to talk to him about the gospel? 
And Schaefer replied that I would spend 50 minutes on all of the negative to show him his real dilemma. That that man is morally dead. And then I would take the last 10 minutes to preach the good news of the gospel. I want to read this again. Paul said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul said the regeneration that you are looking for is something that God puts in you when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. And I want to stop for a moment because so often we walk a path into what we call in theological circles as easy believism. We tell people if you just believe in Jesus, but we never explain what we're really believing in. If you say just believe in Jesus, you're on your way to heaven. That's not what the word of God tells us. The word of God says that we have to believe that he came and lived a sinless life. That he died on the cross for your sins. That he was buried in the grave and by the power of God three days later he rose from that grave. And now he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. The Bible says if we believe that whole thing in our heart but we confess it with our mouth then we shall be saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it say just believe in Jesus. James tells us that even the demons believe. And when you do that, when you believe in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and when you confess that with your mouth, there is no hurt. There is no fear there is no guilt, there is no corruption, nothing in this life that can't be washed away by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this life that can't be removed and redeemed and healed if you believe those things in your heart and you confess them with your mouth. Do you know that the people that God used to change the world were deeply flawed individuals. Man, thank God for the deeply flawed people that he uses. Peter was a coward. Paul often came across as harsh and abrasive. Thomas doubted that Christ even came back. And yet, it was, it was the power of God inside of them that made these incredible men and women that changed history. The people that we read about in the Bible, the story after story of martyred Christians around the globe from history. I want you to know, Christian, that those men and women that were martyred for the name of Christ, they were not made of more promising material than you and I were. Do you know what they had? Regeneration, salvation, justification through the name of Jesus Christ. Through the name of Jesus Christ, they were made new. You know, we go back one chapter to Titus chapter 2 and Paul talks about how the grace of God trans, or trains us in righteousness. 
And as I was putting this together, I could not help but think that that is what we all need. Training in righteousness. We need training in righteousness. Christian in here, uh, Christian online, you don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need to be infused with new life. That's what needs to happen. We're, we're not here to, to resolve to do better. We need to walk in the resurrection power that's already inside of us. That's what we need to do. We need to walk, Christian, in the forgiveness that's already been given to you. Stop walking in self-condemnation. Stop doing it. If Christ has forgiven you, then turn towards him and press in and let him continually change you and mold you and shape you. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't have that relationship, well, guess what? You can call on his name right here, right now. You don't have to wait. God's grace is given to you and I And so, Christian, we have to understand that God's grace is power. It's not just pardon. God's grace is power. It's not just pardon. And so, Paul said this. He said in verse 6, Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you see what Paul said? He said that he poured out richly, lavishly. It was costly for him, but it was free for us. I've said this to you before, but I I don't think I've ever heard um, another statement that really truly encapsulates this, uh, this way. But someone once told me that the word grace should stand for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And he said that this happened so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Meaning that in God, you get, in Jesus, you get everything that God has to offer. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And I know we just spent a ton of time, but that's, that's the indicative. That's the statement of truth about Jesus, what we are without Christ and what we can have with him. That's the indicative. That's our statement of truth. He declares to us the very core of our faith. But Paul was not just giving you and I a doctrinal lecture for the sake of giving us a lecture. That's not why he gave us this. In fact, he was urging us towards a certain behavior. And there are two imperatives, commands that I want to give to us before we go into our time of communion. And the first is this, the imperative for the unbeliever is that you must be born again. You must be born again. If you are in here or you are online or you go back and listen or, or watch this sermon, you are left without God in a state of guilt and the only way to be made new and to receive forgiveness and to be born again is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. I don't want to rehash 26 weeks of Acts, but Peter said to us, probably one of the most profound statements that Peter ever said, and he said that there is no other name under heaven by which you are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. 
Paul said to call on the name of the Lord and to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And when you do this, you shall be saved. And when that happens, when you and I receive the power of the kingdom of God, it's something that is done to you. And oftentimes you have no idea where it's going to take you. All you can do is surrender and receive, receive the grace of God as a helpless beggar. That's it. Salvation has to be received as a gift. And the only way that it can be received is as a gift. There was an old hymn that used to say, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to my Savior I cling. So the imperative for the unbeliever is to be born again. The imperative for the believer, and this is the hard part, believer, you have to see the unbelieving world through that lens. You have to see the unbelieving world through that lens. I want you to go back with me to verse number one. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. What do you see in those two verses? What do you see? When I look at that, I see humility. I see humility when I see those two verses. Paul says that you should show regard for all people because they are dead just like you were, but they are still made in the image of God. They still need the hope that you have. And then the world will start to look differently to you, Christian. It will start to look differently. You will find yourself giving your money away. You will find yourself giving your time away. You will find yourself serving. You will find yourself ready and and eager to do good work, not just because you have to, but because you want to glorify God and love others because the Spirit of God is now inside of you. You know, God is after people who are gracious because He is gracious. God is after people who treat others the way that we see Christ interacting with others in Scripture. And Paul says that when we do that, it will authenticate our faith to the outside world. Um, this may be a long shot, but how many of you in here know a man by the name of Roy Hattersley? Anybody? Roy Hattersley was the deputy leader of the Labor Party in the United Kingdom. And he was also a public and very outspoken atheist. And he said this, fascinating, by the way, that an atheist says this. He said, the arguments against religion are well known and they are persuasive. And yet the men and women who believe in their quote-unquote God are the people most likely to take risks and make sacrifices that involve helping the people around them. An atheist sees it. John Wesley, I mean, the the man himself that formed uh, the Methodist movement of that day, which is where our denomination even comes from, he said that good works are no guarantee of a place in heaven but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. Paul said good works authenticate your faith to an outside world. In fact, Paul said without these changes, 
can you really say that your faith is even real? Christian, in here this morning, you cannot have encountered the grace of God and still treat sin casually. You can't. You and I can't understand salvation and be lukewarm in how we see God. You couldn't have tested God's or tasted God's incredible grace and still be a stingy, ungenerous, unforgiving person towards other people. And so Paul says in conclusion to the short three chapters, he says this in verse number eight. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. So what is Paul saying here? Don't get distracted. That's what Paul is saying. Don't get distracted. Keep the main things the main things. Make the cross the very center of your life and the focus of your ministry. Avoid controversies. I'm not talking about not addressing hard topics, but avoid controversies. Avoid people who major on rules and rituals and styles of worship and minor points of doctrine like end times and and what's truly going to, why? Because when you talk about all those things all the time, you're covering up and you're neglecting the major part of Christianity and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Church, the only thing with power is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's that's where the power is. The only thing that the Bible called the power of God was salvation. And so I want you to get yourself, Christian, into a place where the gospel of grace is heralded and rejoiced in and talked about and soaked in. Every day. Do you know what's, what's amazing about our Savior? So I have to, sorry, I've got to hold this back because um, I really want to just shout loudly and, I, and I, I just want to be as reverent as possible because there is something that I cannot get over. What's so amazing about God is that despite our sin and our wickedness, He still welcomes us. He still welcomes us. And I I pray every day that I never get over that fact. That even though you and I were once yelling, crucify Him, He still says, come to me. Come to me. Man, what a welcome. What a welcome. He still uh, awaits our, our presence at the invitation that he extends. And at the table of God's grace, we find that our sins are forgiven, that our, our debt is completely paid, that our past is covered, that our future is secure. 
And I don't know about you, but I feel like that's a welcome like anything else I've ever received. And so before, before you and I come forward to partake in the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, I just want to read to us a couple of verses. If you want to turn with me, you can, but I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I want us to stop right there. Because Paul said that we are to let every man examine himself. That word examine means to prove. Meaning to literally qualify one's self. Someone who examines himself is qualifying himself to eat at the Lord's table. And that happens first and foremost by ensuring that we are actually saved, that we're actually saved, that we are a part of God's family, that we have repented and asked the Lord to please forgive us and save us, and that you and I are in a right relationship with the Lord. We not only examine our salvation, but we are also to examine our sanctification, meaning that we are to examine God's rule and reign in our life. That means that you and I have to come to the table ready. Ready. I'm not talking about some religious ritual that we just do. I'm not even talking about coming perfect because we can't. I'm talking about coming prepared. That we make sure that there's nothing in us that's not right before God and others. That we have a clean conscience. And so I'm going to ask at this time that the music is going to begin to play here in just a moment. And when it does, I'm going to ask you to just get out of your seats, come here down the center aisle, grab a communion cup, and I'm going to ask you to make your way back to your seats on the outside. Before we go, though, I am going to ask you, um, this is a time uh, to get alone with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to please be respectful and, and not take... Um, the amazing sounding plastic at the top and start crinkling in it uh, while we're spending a, a time for just a moment uh, with the Lord. And so when the music plays, I'm going to ask you to come. We will eat together as a family um, in just a moment. And so guys, if you would go ahead and cue that music. Um, and at this time, you can begin uh, to make your way to the front and back to your seats for a moment of examination. There are two focal points this morning as we partake in the Lord's Supper. These focal points are symbols and they have no saving power in and of themselves. The first is the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ. The text 
here in 1 Corinthians tells us that the body of Christ was broken for us, which means this, that just as bread gives life to the body physically, Christ gave his body for us so that we might have life spiritually. The Bible describes to us even in the Gospel of John that Jesus himself was the bread of life. Thus, when we gather here and we take the bread from the Lord's table, we are reminded that Jesus is our life, that he is the one by whom we live. The second is the cup. It symbolizes the blood that was spilt for us. The blood of the new covenant that Paul said, that the new arrangement for living that God has made by which our old life has ended. This is what the cup should mean to us. That we agree to that, that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. So when we take the cup and we drink it, we are publicly proclaiming that we agree with the sentence of death upon our old life. And we believe that the Christian life is a continual experience of life coming out of death. So as we come to the table this morning, we remember that Christ gave his life so that we might have a new life and live in this new life. Scripture tells us that there was a prayer of thanksgiving that happened before the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And so I have asked this morning a few of our board members to come and pray over these two pieces. And so Amy, if you would at this time, please uh, pray uh, over the body of Christ that was broken for us. Lord, when I think about the sacrifice that you made and the pain that you suffered and the enormity of it all, I'm frequently speechless. You did something that none of us would do for each other. And we thank you. We thank you for the gift that you've given us. That you suffered and gave up your flesh so that we could be saved. So that the debt would be paid. Thank you for the the symbolism we have of the bread that represents your body, Lord. And just thank you. Thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name. Jesus broke the bread. He said, this is my body, which is for you. He said, do this um, in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. He then said that in the same way he took the cup after supper. And he's saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so at this time, Ken, would you please say a prayer uh, over the blood? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for uh, the shedding of uh, Christ's blood on the cross. I just... It's a reminder to all of us that he really cares for us. And, um, and I just pray that uh, we would uh, remember the blood that was shed for each one of us. And I want to thank you, Lord, for everything that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. Amen. And Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Now, we know from Scripture 
that when they finish the Passover, they sing a hymn together. No doubt something from Psalm chapter 116, 17, or 18. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come back at this time as we close in a song. Something that's going to be a little bit different. Something that we've done here uh, before. Um, And we are going to ask that when you are done, um, if you would go ahead and please uh, stand up with us.